Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tori Montrose, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Richard Payne about his new book, Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition. Richard Payne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tori. Good to be with you. I wonder if you could start us off by giving us a bit of your background in in Buddhist studies and 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 or Buddhism. I'd be happy to. I grew up in the uh, South Bay, south of San Francisco, and from as early as I can remember, was exposed to the Japanese American Buddhist community, uh, specifically the San Jose Buddhist Temple. Um, Grew up going to Obon festivals and to bonsai shows. Um, So it was a natural and regular part of my life um, from, like I say, from as early as I can remember. Um, Then in the um, sort of backwash of the Beat Era, uh, got exposed to Zen um, but then particularly became interested in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, there's a, a movie called Requiem for a Faith that Houston Smith put out, which I do not recommend, um, but which has... So I saw imagery of the uh, wrathful deities and felt that these people, Tibetan Buddhists, had a clear understanding of deep parts of the mind that I did had not seen represented in any of the art associated with Zen Buddhism. Um, and so that led me to look into Tibetan Buddhism just pretty shortly after the time that the um, Nyingma Institute in Berkeley uh, was being started by Tartong Tuku. And I studied there for a number of years. When it got to the point of going to um, do my dissertation research, however, by then I was married and we had our, our daughter. And I felt that it was going to be better for us to go to Japan, where they had you know, better medical care in case we needed it, um, rather than going to some gompa in the back part of Nepal or something. Um, so at that point, I began to make contact with the Shingon tradition, which is Japanese esoteric Buddhism, which in my mind combined the very best kind of um, balance between Japanese Buddhism, which I was very comfortable with culturally, and Tantric Buddhism, uh, which I was very interested in uh, because of my exposure to Tibetan Buddhism. Wonderful. 
Thank you so much. That's a very rich background and, and incredibly varied <laughs> um, uh, that you're bringing to this to this project and to your work. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of, of this book project. Yeah. So several years ago, I wrote some rather snarky uh, blog posts um, and those were read by one of the editors at Shambhala um, and at a conference, at an academic conference, we fell to talking and um, she suggested to me that I should uh, consider doing this project. Um, and it seemed to me to be a very important one because of how much is um, interaction there is that involves both Western culture and Buddhist culture, uh, and to explore that and to develop a, a way of thinking about that um, and to make that accessible to people, to make it available to, to people. Uh, so it came out of this conversation, and um, I must say that working with Shambhala was great. Um, they're very supportive um, publisher, and uh, was very happy with the experience of working with them. Um, and so far, the book seems to have um, done pretty well, uh, gotten a lot of attention. And uh, I'm very pleased that it is out and available to people. Great. Um, I wonder, uh, before we move on to um, some of the reception pieces of the book, I'm curious about, but I'm also wondering about, you know, how the particular collection of contributors came about. Um, was there a, a call for contributors? Did you, you know, reach out to specific people? What was the thinking about kind of bringing this group of scholars together and practitioners? So, as will not surprise you, my own orientation is, of course, very um, academic. And um, I had a, the, the particular authors resulted from a conversation with the, the Shambhala editor. Um, and some of them were people that I knew, some of them were people I suggested, some were people that uh, she knew and that she suggested. and. It, um, I think it came together nicely as a representative sample of scholars who are thinking about different aspects of the modern history of Buddhism and um, practitioners who, are, who have a scholarly orientation. Yeah, I, I would agree. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really nice blend of voices in that way. And it makes me think a little bit about, you know, the the intended audience for this book. Um, I think I really should say intended audiences because it seems as though, you know, there could be a couple of different um, kind of uh, communities or audiences uh, for, for a work like this. And I wonder in addition to that, how you think those audiences or that audience might, you might picture them using it. What, what do you think they, you know, um, might get from the book? Hmm. So the, I, I was really, okay, let me start over. One of the values for me was having the opportunity to work with Shambhala on the production uh, because they are a 
um, a publisher that will be able to reach a wider, much wider audience than an academic press would. And I wanted to be able to contribute to the conversation. Um, now, it's apparently some people have taken this as uh, somehow an attack on secular Buddhism. Uh, it's not by any means meant to be that. Um, so the other dimension of that is that you know most of the people in here are academics, and the academic approach tends to be one that is not so much either for or against, but involved in a in contributing to a conversation and looking closely at some phenomena. Um, so sometimes people seem to mistake a critical approach uh, that is a close study or analysis. They seem to confuse that with criticism. Um, and it was neither a uh, advocating in favor of secular Buddhism, nor is it advocating against it. My hope was to provide as wide an audience as possible with ways of thinking about their involvement with Buddhism in the modern, you know, in the contemporary Western world today. Um, not to say it's good or it's bad that you should be doing this or should be doing that, but providing background information that enables people to make up their own minds and to formulate their own forms of Buddhism. Certainly. Yeah, and so I think in that way, it benefits both the scholar of 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 Buddhism that is looking at particularly modern and sec and um, contemporary forms of Buddhism to kind of look at this one, um, uh, not one rather, but look at the various ways that um, the authors in this book have kind of theorized what what these various processes of secularizing Buddhism looks like, um, and also as you say, the kind of uh, practitioners of some uh, some form of secularizing Buddhism or uh, or of uh, a Buddhism that maybe uh, doesn't uh, align with with that um, with that framework um, to to understand um, uh, some of these phenomena that we're seeing uh, in the in the present. Um, I yeah yeah. Great. I was very glad to be able to include the um, chapters by Charles Jones and Kate Crosby, which point to a much wider background. Um, it's very easy, and I know that I've done this to mistakenly equate um, secular Buddhism with something that's only happening in the West. Um, but there are strains that go back to the um, resistance to colonialism in the 19th century, uh, both in South and Southeast Asia and in East Asia as well. Um, so much of the work, much of the, the struggle to modernize Buddhism, um, including, for example, the creation of uh, modern Vipassana uh, and the modernization of Zen, were anti-colonial in motivation. Um, and that gives it a much broader um, framework to think about rather than simply locating it as a set of Western development, that somehow we in the West are making this development of Buddhism. No, this is something that has been going on for two centuries 
um, and has been, had a global origin. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, you're very careful in your editor's introduction to set up, um, you know, uh, a variety of, um, of binaries and, and talking about the kind of the problems with our often binary uh, modes of thinking about these problems between modern and traditional or secular and religious, um, East and West. Um, and one of the particularly helpful sections, I think, in this intro is about the way that you distinguish between the secularizing of Buddhism from Buddhist modernism. I wonder if you could share that a little bit of that with us here. Let me see if I remember the way I presented it there. The, um, as I recall, the distinction I made is that Buddhist modernism uh, is a descriptive term uh, that is inclusive of a lot of different kinds of events and phenomena and developments in Buddhism, um, whereas the secular Buddhism is much more of a movement. Um, it has people who I self-identify as secular Buddhists and who speak from that perspective. Uh, nobody in particular talks about themselves as a, of, as a Buddhist modernist. Um, they may, you know, there is a history of talking about the desire to modernize Buddhism, um, but it's not like an identity that people take on, the way in which being a secular Buddhist um, is an identity. Um, and one of the uh, things that I've had the, the pleasure of being um, involved in over the last few months was being invited to participate in two meetings of a group that call themselves the Gen X Buddhist Teachers. Um, and this is a group that uh, I'm not sure exactly who all the participants are, but uh, clearly they're all younger, um, younger than I am, um, teachers who are active in propagating uh, the Dharma in one way or another. And at the, the second meeting, um, I met with them early in the fall and then uh, just very recently. And one of the things that it turned out, the reading of the book, which they had done in between time and conversing about it in weekly meetings, um, had propagated conversation amongst them. And there were people who found it beneficial as providing a way for them to talk to one another uh, about their concerns and about their understandings uh, of how other people were engaged in Buddhism. So it, it enabled a conversation that might not have taken place otherwise. And that was very heartening to me that even though you know, not everybody agreed with everything and that's, you know, that's just how things are. Um, that the fact that it enabled people to converse between different traditions, uh, mm -hmm. because this group has a wide variety of different kind of um, traditions represented in it, including a person who identifies, self-identifies as a secular Buddhist. Um, mm -hmm. So that was surprisingly to me one of the benefits of having produced this. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think, um, you know, part of what that example lets me think of, and, and also, you know, in general, I think I see this book very much as being part of 
um, a scholarly uh, effort, especially recently, to find uh, better language for talking about <laughs> the um, the processes that you know that Buddhism is experiencing right now. Um, you know, there was a uh, a wonderful panel at last year's American Academy of Religion about kind of problematizing uh, Buddhist modernism, which even just a few years back was an, you know, an incredibly useful framework. And now we're still, you know, trying to work through, you know, how do we move beyond that concept and, and further refining our language? Um, and what I'm hearing from this example with the Gen X uh, group is, you know, Th this book is providing, you know, language for um, for people to identify some of what they're seeing, but not always knowing how to talk about it. Um, and, uh, you know, because especially dealing with contemporary, uh, you know, contemporary phenomenon, it's it, it can be very hard to kind of step outside and, and think, you know, uh, think about kind of the meta uh, phenomenon happening. So I wonder if you can say more about um, uh, just either in your your own thinking about this work or in some of the you know specific chapters um, about the the care given to um, to language and to to terminology um, if you could say more about that okay yeah in my own um, work in this one of the things that I was wanting to be able to communicate um, is actively reflecting on how terms like secular, like religious, um, are interconnected. I mean, this is a pretty basic um, structural kind of understanding of the nature of language. That any each oppositional pair adds to the complexity and therefore the kind of um, strength of being able to convince because it's so enmeshed with so many other meanings. Um, recently, I heard um, another pair being used of a living tradition versus a sedimented tradition. So this goes along then with, you know, religion being sedimented, uh, secular being a living tradition, and so on. Um, so it's very useful, I think, for people to consciously be able to reflect on the way in which language is so convincing. And the, one of the ways that it's so convincing is that it carries along all of these different meanings. Um, and each connotation and opposition then strengthen the whole web of meanings uh, and make it all that much more appear to be all that much more natural uh, and automatic and um, convincing. Yes, I, yeah, I think that's a great, these are some great points that you're raising. I think as, you know, another context, yet another context um, in thinking about this is in in teaching, you know, um, teaching uh, right now an undergraduate intro to Buddhism class and, um, you know, simply um, bringing to light these, you know, the power of these kind of binaries and, um, and these pairings, uh, uh, and the kind of the power that they have over, um, our ways of thinking, uh, I think is, is such a wonderful tool that we can equip, um, students, uh, students with, uh, in, in, in the classroom. And, 
on at the same time, I find that sometimes my students are way ahead of me on this. They're, you know, they're sort of like, oh, we know, <laughs> we know that, you know, um, uh, you know, especially when you're thinking about like gender identity or sexuality and things like that. I think the newer generations are much quicker to pick up on these ideas of the limitations of of these binary frameworks. Um, and so uh, in that sense, uh, it can make my job quite easy in the classroom. But, uh, but I think, again, these ideas, um, you know, uh, these labels that we, um, that we use and, and the pairings um, still uh, hold quite a bit of, of power over our kind of unconscious um, frames. So I think, uh, you know, bringing to light um, these and problematizing them, I think is really important. And that actually made me think about um, another section, another kind of section or through line in the book, um, I think is really uh, the kind of um, maybe a, something like a pitfalls of decontextualization or the, the, um, the consequences of decontextualization. Um, I saw this really strongly in, you know, particularly running through Sarah Shaw's and Funi Shu and Pamela Winfield's chapters. Um, this, you know, each of them dealing with very different case studies, but looking at um, uh, the ways in which uh, decontextualizing uh, Buddhist practices or Buddhist ideas or Buddhist art from um, from their original context, uh, how much is how much is lost and and changed as a result. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you see um, maybe these three chapters or or parts of parts of them um, and this role of decontextualization in these in these case studies and perhaps others in the book. Yes, I think that that's a really critical issue because so much of the um, modern way of thinking tends to treat technology uh, as kind of value neutral um, and context free. Um, That we can take this way of doing things and just simply relocate it into a different place and use it for a different purpose. Um, and it's one of the difficulty is not that we can't do that, but that we then have our own context, our own purpose. Uh, the, the technology is never actually neutral. Uh, it's never value free. It's being given different kinds of values. Uh, so when something like uh, mindfulness is used in the medical context, that's not, it's not just a um, technology that is being conveyed that people can then apply. It's coming with all of the authority of the medical institution, all of the associations with science, uh, and so on. Um, and it's, the decontextualization as if we have something that we can pick up out of, you know, 12th century Japan or 18th century Tibet or 2nd century BC South India and think that we're, that that is somehow what we're embracing is, I think, incredibly naive. It fails to understand that we are taking it into our own context. Um, Things are never context-free. They're never value-neutral. 
Um, boy, uh, that's uh, pretty much, the, I think, why it's so important mm-hmm. to realize that these things do have a history. They do have uh, a place and time and a meaning. And to pull out just one part of that uh, is to distort um, what the practice is. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm not being really, really articulate here. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I think um, I, I think uh, that it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I wonder if you could, you know, just share with us some of the, you know, the examples from um, say more about some of the examples in the case studies um, just to kind of uh, link it up with, with this, I think really important point that you're making about, um, about the, you know, that, that no, uh, you know, um, movement of practices or transplant of practices or objects or um, texts or teachings is really a value free and, and can be decontextualized um, without, you know, moving into a new context. Yeah. One of the, an aspect of what goes on, I think, is the failure to recognize the role of one's own selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I keep going back to um, Jean-Paul Sartre's notion of bad faith, mm. uh, that by ignoring the, the role of how we are the ones who are making the selection, we're already constructing the object in a way that we want to um, incorporate it for ourselves. Um, and so by denying, by, by making a claim, for example, that, oh, this is just the original teaching of the Buddha. Right. Um, that is a, a very, very complex decision uh, that is based on a lot of selectivity. And to ignore all of that, then simply as a way of claiming the authority of the original, the pure, the authentic, uh, without being re- taking the responsibility of saying, well, this is what I think is of value. This is what I think makes sense. And then mm-hmm. answering the question, well, why? Why does that make sense? How sure. does that make sense? Um, so the way in which texts are selected, practices are selected, um, teachers are selected, all of this involves a lot of uh, prejudgment about mm-hmm. what is important and what is authoritative and so on. Um, you know, and to, to ignore that is, um, I, I think, just simply pretty irresponsible Mm -hmm. uh that's a strong word i know but um you know to to only look at one side of the process by which uh new forms are created um Mm -hmm. or new interpretations are generated um i think that you know distort is a disservice it's a disservice to ourselves it's a disservice to the history of the tradition it's a disservice to others yeah I think that's certainly one of the big takeaways from um, from Funishu's contribution, right? That um, by sort of um, uh, extracting this you know, question of the efficacy of of mindfulness um, and extracting it from from its you know original Buddhist context uh, is 
like an, an act of imperialistic violence, right? It's this the, kind of the, one of the points, uh, big takeaways, I think, of, of her work. Um, so I, I certainly see how that, um, that connects there. I, I wonder if I could just take us in a slightly different direction about this idea of, you know, secularizing Buddhism and, and to what extent, um, you know, the, the digital age that we are in right now has maybe accelerated um, this, uh, this phenomenon or this, this movement um, or, or not. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, even just in moving some of my intro to Buddhism classes online, you know, and, and talking to them about the embodied experience of religious practice, but from, from a digital, st- digital format, um, you know, uh, it leaves us with a lot of questions about, you know, uh, what effect that may be having on um, both on the context that we we're just talking about, but also on this kind of secularizing piece. So I wonder if you have thoughts on that. I do think that the advent of digital technology has had a number of benefits, Um I know, for example, in having looked into some of the secular Buddhist groups, they actually were able to form uh, online. Uh, some of those began online prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic has made things even more um, shift over to online even more so. And for some groups, they have gone during the pandemic onto YouTube broadcasts and onto um, broadcasts from their own website. And again, those have been able to reach out to a much wider audience and to create a different kind of community. I mean, I agree that it's not the same kind of experience of community, but it certainly is a kind of community. With the pandemic the effect at the Institute of Buddhist Studies has been for us for the last several semesters to be entirely online. And I've been able to have students who are in Southern California uh, or in the, on the East Coast participate, and they would never have been able to before. And I think that in many ways, this is a, a transformation from which we will not be going back, that the very model of what, for example, graduate education used to be as people coming, you know, relocating themselves to a new city, and in some cases, very expensive cities like Berkeley to live for a period of two to five years while they finish their graduate studies, is much less workable uh, when there are alternatives to that. Uh, that make it feasible for people to not have to leave their families, not have to leave their homes, not have to leave their jobs, and still be able to engage in studies. The effect for groups has been that it has the, the same reach, the same outreach, the same potential to connect people who are otherwise uh, not going to be able to access. Not everybody can you know, go to uh, a local a particular local teacher, but many, many people can turn to YouTube live broadcasts and get the teachings. 
So there have been benefits, and it has, I, I think, been um, something that has stimulated the formation of several of the secular Buddhist groups, and it's also been a vehicle by which uh, ideas about secular Buddhism have been propagated. Um, and of course, it's not been an unmixed blessing um, because there's also all of the negative consequences uh, that we see in the political world of having misinformation uh, being propagated by uh, electronic means. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, you spoke uh, um, about sort of the, the ways that it has facilitated the formation or or strengthening of, of community. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, I know, I happen to know that, you know, uh, your your work, uh, your, kind of your other, one of your other corners of research in Buddhist studies is, is in ritual studies. And so I wonder, you know, kind of bringing these two ideas together. I was, this is something I was going to ask you anyway about, um, you know, thinking about how, you know, even rituals are, are being brought online and um, this, this question of a kind of um, disembodied uh, experience or, or altered uh, physicality, you know, with the digital space. Um, I'm wondering if, if you think, you um, you know, in this new era uh, of of more digital spaces for um, for the practice of Buddhism, but also you know the kind of the secularizing process as well. Um, how you think about that from your kind of ritual studies uh, perspective? If 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 you've given thought to that, I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, one of the things that has interested me is how people have gone. Um, online with rituals um, and I think it can be a way it can foster thinking about what constitutes ritual efficacy what makes a ritual effective um, and there's no you know one answer to this, that all Buddhist groups need to adhere to by any means. But I've certainly been seeing from my perspective that much of what constitutes some of the initiations that are available on YouTube um, are instructional. It's information. Uh, It's not something, um, some kind of magical transformation that is conveyed through the you know computer screen. Um, on the other hand, there are groups that apparently seem to to have that kind of notion, um, who do see this as establishing a, um, a kind of spiritual connection between a teacher and uh, an initiate, and. In, in a sense, these are um, just the latest, in a sense, the latest development of what Buddhism has done since its inception. I mean, effectively, since the Buddha said, okay, as long as there are 10 of you together, you can initiate a new monk, um, that was a form of 
new technology. It was no longer dependent upon Shakyamuni Buddha himself to do that initiation. Uh, there was now a new mechanism by which um, someone could become a member of the community. Um, and uh, recall that um, a lot of um, instruction used to be done by letters uh, from teachers to students, uh, individual letters that were written. Um, so the the fact of a new kind of technology is, um, in a sense, just an extension of what Buddhism as an institution has always done, uh, which is attempt to find new ways to communicate the teachings and to um, allow people to become members of the community. Yeah, I think those are those are some excellent sort of historical um, uh, perspectives that um, that you're providing. It, you know, it strikes me as kind of interesting too, um, thinking about you know uh, yet another pocket of your of your research is on is on Buddhism and business or Buddhism and economics, right? Um, and so I you know I I see this current project about secularizing Buddhism as being this very interesting intersection, um, you know, uh, of, you know, I, I see this sort of, um, the natural, um, kind of course of actions that would lead you to this curiosity about secularizing Buddhism, um, from your scholarly background. Do you see any intersections there in terms of your work with, on Buddhism and business and, and how that may have, uh, informed your approach to this to this work in secularizing Buddhism? The, the two have been kind of in parallel with one another. Um, the work on Buddhism and economics, um, gosh, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or more, um, For some reason, I was thinking about, okay, so there are these different approaches. Probably I was teaching a methodology class. I was thinking, okay, so there are these different approaches to the study of religion. Uh, there's you know, psychology of religion. There's anthropology of religion. There's sociology of religion. Oh, but wait a minute. What about the economics of religion? Um, and that as a field is a very recent development. And the study of Buddhism uh, from an economic perspective is even more recent than that. Um, but that looks at Buddhism in the context of being a, a social institution. Um, and in fact, we, um, Fabio Rambelli and I have just uh, finished a collection of essays that grew out of a five-year-long seminar um, and that is going to be uh, published by Bloomsbury. And that collection, uh, one of the goals that, that I have is to say, okay, there's something that we can call Buddhist economics. Uh, and Buddhist economics is an ethical uh, discourse. Um, that's attempting to apply Buddhist principles to economic decisions and actions and to say one should do this or one should not. Uh, and that goes back to the 
um, Small is Beautiful Notion, a book that was published several years ago. Um, But that, as as an ethical discourse, is different from the academic study of Buddhism as an economic institution uh, and how economic relationships and economic decisions and economic framework influence the development of Buddhist thought, Buddhist practices, and Buddhist institutions. Um, there are some precursors in the, the uh, field um, who have done historical studies have begun to point out that, yes, the, the idealized version of Buddhism of all religions as not being involved with economic matters um, was itself a sort of uh, propaganda. Um, it was a view of religion that was uh, supposed to separate religion from matters of business, um, from economic decisions. Um, and yet it was a very artificial and unrealistic representation so the idea that you know all Buddhist monks you know wander with their begging bowls and uh, have no possessions outs- other than a bowl and their robes and a needle and some medicine um, is simply an idealized version. Uh, the institution was always enmeshed in economic relationships. Right. I think I think and that naturally makes me think about these kind of modern day, you know, decisions that uh, Buddhist organizations, Buddhist temples are making about, you know, some of them uh, with economics, bearing economics in mind that have a role in some of these secularizing forces that you're talking about, um, that this isn't something necessarily that's just like happening to Buddhism, right? But is happening very much, <laughs> it's happening very much um, as a part of Buddhism from within, right? As much as from without. And so, um, you know, these, these decisions, even, you know, things like um, Buddhist tourism and, um, you know, offering, you know, secularized versions of Buddhist practice within temples or, um, you know, loosely affiliated with, with uh, Buddhist groups, I think is, um, you know, part and parcel of, of the, the groups that are, that are serving as case studies in this book. What do you think? Yes. The, um, as I suggested earlier, the origins of Buddhist modernism um, and the, the goal of modernizing Buddhism that carries forward into the creation of the secular forms um, comes out of the colonial era, um, comes out of the economics uh, of that period. And this is also deeply enmeshed with um, religious intolerance and racial prejudice. Um, I remember reading several years ago um, in some of the um, some of the sociology literature on modernization theory and someone there was talking about the the economic um, condition of Burma and blamed 
the economic condition of modern Burma on Buddhism. Um, and this is the kind of thing that says, you know, well, of course, you know, if, if you're going to stop every time you drive a plow across a field to move the earthworm, uh, you're never going to have progress. Because, you know, those silly Buddhists, they can't have progress because they, you know, they don't, they have all these weird ideas about how the world works. Um, but the, the analysis of the, the economic condition of Burma some years later, as I read more about Burmese history, was entirely in the absence of the context of World War II. Um, and Burma in particular suffered twice because of the advances of the Japanese from the south to the north of Burma uh, and all the battles and destruction that that involved. And then in the reverse order of the British pushing down through Burma uh, in order to push the Japanese out. So the country went through two periods of um, serious depredation um, and was the, the economy was totally decimated at the end of World War II. And yet, for whatever reason, it was easy to lay the blame on the religion of the country um, for the, the lack of economic development or what was being perceived as the lack of economic development um, there. Um, so economic conditions are constraints, shall we say, that they, they limit not so much that they motivate particular things, although they can do that too, but they may also, more importantly, constrain what options are available uh, to in a certain direction. Um, you know, thinking about some of the immigrant groups who have come to the United States, uh, they have to, in order to operate, they have to incorporate and that means that they have to take on a particular kind of organizational structure if they're going to be qualified uh, as a nonprofit organization, nonprofit religious organization. Uh, and those laws have imposed particular forms of decision making that have, in many cases, caused conflict between traditional expectations coming from societies where the kind of board of governors who is responsible for the financial uh, well-being of an organization and who is technically the owner of the property, um, that that kind of idea just doesn't exist in the societies from which these forms of Buddhism originate. Uh, so those conflicts um, have equally deep economic and social and generational uh, as well as doctrinal um, in, um, effects for different Buddhist communities. Great. Um, so I'm wondering, we've talked a little bit about your, you know, various 
areas of research, including, um, you know, your interest in secularizing Buddhism. I wonder if you could tell us where you might be going next, what you're, uh, what you're working on now or what your next project is. Well, I mentioned the, the collection on, um, called Buddhism under capitalism, uh, which, uh, Fabio and I are, are working on. Um, and that, that project is um, almost done. Uh, we're um, back and forth in the final stages of the submission of the, the manuscript. Um, for myself, once uh, that project is wrapped up, I have um, an encyclopedia of Buddhism, the, the Oxford Encyclopedia of Buddhism, which has been an online project uh, for several years now, and we're working now for a print version. Um, and in addition, there's also, I'm also involved in the Oxford Handbook of Tantric Studies. Um, and that we're also in the stages of um, gathering uh, essays for the final collection of uh, now. Um, so both of those will be both online uh, and in print, uh, and the encyclopedia will be an ongoing project uh, well beyond the scope of the print version. Uh, and one of the very exciting things I, I find about um, electronic media, uh, you'd asked about this previously, but um, the fact that, you know, I remember when... <laughs> When I grew up, it was a big deal to have a copy of the Encyclopedia, particularly the Encyclopedia Britannica in the house. That was like the ultimate thing. Um, and what I learned was that then there were the yearbooks that came with the Encyclopedia. If you subscribed on an ongoing basis, you got a yearbook every year that updated a lot of the material. And that was a very um, expensive project. Um, and I'm, you know, deeply appreciative of the work that has been done in print previously on you know, encyclopedias and dictionaries of Buddhism. But to be able to have a, an online vehicle that is open-ended, um, that can be added to and revised on an ongoing basis rather than having to print a yearbook every year or um, to send out, you know, I mean, perhaps you recall the Encyclopedia of Religion, the old um, uh, collection that um, Mircea Eliade headed up and how expensive that set was and then how big a deal it was when the revised version came out. Um, that, you know, huge projects to get, you know, the second edition of the Encyclopedia of Religion. Um, and yet all of that is so much easier now with the online media. Um, and one of the reasons that I continue to be, um, that I'm happy to be involved with Oxford is that they, many years ago, they took a very proactive stance on putting things online. 
um, and at a time when that was very new and very risky. Um, you know, I know that for many scholars for many years, the attitude, for example, toward a uh, an online journal um, was that well, it wasn't really very it it inherently must not be good. Um, that only a print journal would have any quality to it. Um, and so it has been a big transition to get the acceptance of journals like the Journal of Global Buddhism, uh, Journal of Buddhist Ethics, uh, and others that have started out and are entirely online. And yet today they're, you know, completely acceptable uh, for tenure purposes, for academics, uh, and for credibility. The review committees are, you know, just as stringent and the procedures just as rigid um, as the old print versions used to be. And the costs involved have um, made that shift over to online media um, imperative in many cases. Libraries also are being driven because of limitations of storage. Um, And for these things to be online and electronic is, I think, a a wonderful step forward. Um, Because, again, it decentralizes uh, where scholarship can take place. Agreed. Agreed. And yes, uh, it's wonderful to hear about some exciting new projects, both online and in print, um, that you're working on. And I hope you'll keep doing it for uh, for as long as you're willing um, with all of your various areas of expertise in Buddhist studies. Um, uh, this has been a really wonderful t- uh, talk. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, so I just want to thank you for uh, joining us on the show today. Thank you so very much for inviting me, Tori. It's been wonderful to catch up with you uh, and uh, have a chance to share some of my reflections, uh, even in um, some of them a little preliminary and and perhaps rougher than uh, in polished form. Oh, well, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye now.